everyone. Anyang Haiseo. This is Kyle and Travis, and we're with Korean Adopty Stories, and we are with uh, Sasha uh, Frugone, or Frugone, I think that's an, an Italian-Sicilian uh, accent right there. So anyway, I'm pretty excited about today's episode because she's a motivational uh, life coach, it sounds like, from what I read. We could talk about a little bit of her articles that she sent me as well. Uh, so Sasha, go ahead and introduce yourself. Could you tell us your name and uh, where you live and your adoption story, if you will, please? Well, gentlemen, I am honored to be here. It is not often that I get to be uh, in conversation with uh, two uh, very handsome young men that are up and coming and successful. So I'm very happy and excited. My name is Sasha Bergon, and I learned to say that because my ex-husband was Sicilian and pretty much everybody was from the East Coast, but the people that I met from the West Coast, they say Fregoni. So it kind of is whichever, whichever direction you like to go with that, that works for me. I was found in Seoul, Korea in 1957. It was December 20th, minus five degrees. And I was found in a trash can behind a restaurant for a very long time. I was adopted by a German-American family, so I am a cross-racial adoption. And for a very long time, that story of being found in a trash can was an identity of shame because that was how it was told to me. My adopted family was extremely dysfunctional. There was abuse at every level. It was part of my very early education. And that story was told to me by my very upset adoptive German mother. And she told me one day that I was so worthless. I was the devil's spawn. And I was so worthless that my own biological mother had disposed of me in a trash can. And I carried that trash and shame identity with me for a very long time. I was fortunate to meet a therapist who introduced me to something that's called reframing. And reframing is just like what you guys are going to do with this video when we're all done. You're going to sit down, you're going to look at it. And because I told you I want to be a movie star, you're only going to pick out the absolute best frames of me of where I really look glamorous and wonderful. Because that, that's the objective that, that, that we're going for here. At the end, I hope I can get your autograph. Oh, you will absolutely. And you know what? You hang on to that because it is totally going to be valuable in the next next six months or so. <laughs> good. That's good. Because you guys, I'm honored. That's really great. Actually, what you just told me about uh, dealing with being uh, like you're thrown in the trash, having that thought process that you really weren't. Uh, meant anything and that actually really really shocked me and i kind of find you being older you must have found a, a way to change that thought process because i could see how damaging that the meaning behind it uh, the negative connotation behind it how were you able to uh, uh deal with that and not uh, spiral in a cycle that wasn't beneficial or healthy well, I did spiral. I mean, I'm 65, so I've already kind of gone past this journey from all the people that you're going to interview that are like less than 30. But I did spiral. I did have my my days of addiction. I had my days of self abuse and self destruction, and I, and I had that space in that period. But the really great thing for me was 
I was just always the most messed up person in the room. And I woke up every morning and the very first thing out of my mouth when I realized that I was still awake was I hate life. I was angry. I attempted a very serious suicide. And when I woke up in the hospital still alive, I was the angriest person left on the planet. And I went forward at a real suicidal pace because now I recognize I cannot die. It's not even, I'm powerless. I can't even choose to leave this earth. And so I lived a really suicidal existence for, for quite a while. I was really fortunate along the way to meet some very edge-cutting therapists, psychiatrists, psychologists, sociologists. I spent tens of thousands of dollars and, and probably more than that of trying to be okay. So it wasn't like I found that out, said, that's okay doesn't affect me, and I went forward with a really amazing, successful life. What really happened for me along the way was all of these individuals, because I woke up one morning and I just got so tired of carrying shame and pain that it internally, it hurt so bad that that was what the addiction was about. It was just to be able to have just even three minutes to not feel the horribleness that was inside of me. And eventually all of these things started coming together. My family at one point in time, and I'm really glad that, that your topic is about mental health. I'm really, really glad about that. And I want everyone to know that I support whatever it is that you need in order to be okay in the world, to, 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 to be a strong human being. And that is what you should do. And that's what you should pursue. I had psychiatrists, I had therapists, I had coaches, I had seminars, I had all the different things that were going on in the generation because psychiatry and mental health was just becoming something that people were starting to embrace when I entered my teens. And then as I started going into my 20s, before that, psychiatry was something that you were ashamed of. You, it, The people that went, you couldn't tell anyone, not in my generation. So I'm really happy that things are changing today. I was constantly put through a lot of different abuses in the hopes that it would cure me because I was seen by my family as um, mentally ill. That was actually the complimentary uh, version of me. The spawn of Satan was the one that really kind of caused fear. So I was really fortunate to have a lot of different avenues open up for me. One of the things that uh, that they did do was they committed me to the state mental hospital when I was 13 years old because I had attempted a very serious suicide. Sorry to stop you right there. So I know that we're already at 13, but it sounds like you had these mental health issues like even before in childhood, you'd say? Oh, I arrived the orphan that had eating disorders. I would steal every bit of food that I could possibly find. And you had to put locks on the cabinets and the refrigerator. And because a child who's four, three and four, doesn't think that things like ice cream and meat spoil, I stole every bit of food that I could get and I would hide it underneath curtains and underneath sofas and behind drapes and in cupboards and closets. So I arrived, yes, with lots and lots of issues. And that really was, that was so very overwhelming for my adopted family. 
so my assumption is that you're speaking a lot of these like uh these behaviors was this when you were still in korea as an orphan or was it actually when you were adopted already and you were just feeling like you need to get food to prepare yourself so you don't feel like you're going to starve i was uh, adopted through hold adoption agency and the only thing they have left was a picture of uh, the day before I left the orphanage. And the day that I was found, I was found in a trash can in behind a restaurant. And when I was found, they predicted that I would not survive the night because the exposure and my malnutrition was so great that they didn't see any hope. And when I survived the night, they said, well, if she survives a week, she's gonna have severe physical handicaps and strong mental limitations. Uh, my friends today are pretty sure that the strong mental limitations did actually take effect, but all the other stuff did not. How old were you when you were actually adopted then? I was found in a year, and I arrived in the States when I was three. Three, okay, gotcha. I talked a little bit about you and your name, and, and I don't know if you know Jody Gill. Mm-hmm. She has that same story where she would actually kind of hide food. It sounds like it might be kind of a more common... Uh, trait that some Korean adoptees, maybe the older ones that were adopted a little later, maybe possibly due to the food malnutrition and food shortages in Korea, I'm wondering. Yes. Well, and in an orphanage, there was never enough food. So even though I arrived at the agency, um, there was just never enough food. So starvation for me was, that was, that was serious. And so, and, and it shows up Later on in my life, uh, I have an odd relationship with food. It's now very healthy and very manageable. But uh, 13 years ago, I weighed 287 pounds. I am five foot tall. So you can imagine, I'm kind of like, I look kind of like a ball being rolled down the street. I, I really barely could move. Well, I just want to congratulate on your weight loss because I can definitely see a big change. <laughs> yes. I would never ex- expected that when you mentioned that. So I'm very proud of you. I recently lost 56 pounds in two years. I understand the difficulty when it comes to losing weight. So I really applaud you. Well, I, I really applaud you because I'm not certain at your age I was uh, healthy enough to do any of the things that you're doing. But it's one of the things that I discovered around um, weight loss. It's the reason why the changes we want to take effect in our life. Traditional methods are all about getting rid of something. And the ego's natural state does not rel- want to relinquish ownership of anything because the ego just is a hoarder. The ego is a hoarder. It, it takes all the bad memories, it stores those, it hangs on to them. It takes everything that anything that you have, it, it, it keeps it and it hangs on to it. So when I started looking at the weight loss, what I had to really look at was not losing something, was not trying to get somewhere, but to understand that when I looked in the mirror and I weighed 287, I was okay with that. Now, the reason why I stayed there was because for me, that was the safest place I had ever been. Men did not even see me when I walked past. Women ceased to hate me because back when I was the exotic woman in the middle in the Midwest and uh, women were extremely jealous and they all thought that I was attempting to have uh, a relationship with their boyfriends, husbands or whatever. So being fat for me was like the safest, most wonderful place that I could ever hope to live. But my late husband was dying of cancer and I had to become his nurse. And I understood that at the weight that I was, there was no possible way I was going to be able to take care of him. And that's what 
motivated my weight loss. So in two years, I lost almost 150 pounds. Well, congratulations. Thank you. But mostly because it's not giving up anything. I didn't try to get to a better person by being smaller. I didn't give up anything. My entire focus was that I was gaining health and I chose all the things that I would add to my life. So everything for weight loss for me is always about adding. It's not about taking away because if you've been in a situation of starvation, taking anything away, all it does is trigger out all that fear from, from your childhood. And now the moment you start thinking about dieting, I'm going to do the reverse. I'm going to go in and binge and I'm going to eat and find as much food as I possibly can because that's the damaged inner child that lives there that starved and remembered what it was like to almost die from starvation. So that's why I don't live life about removing things or taking things away. I live life and create the life I love by adding and choosing what it is that I want to have in my life. So it's just a, it's a very different focus. And I find that that's where the long-term, that's where the long-term effects happen for like weight loss or, or any of the addictions is to not give up any. Did you have to change any of your lifestyle, like diet or exercise, or did things change generally for you or did it really work for it? I know I, everything changed for me. Everything changed. I went from somebody who lived on sugar and who did nothing, uh, not as far as motion was concerned, to uh, somebody that gave up sugar altogether. And the reason why is because I discovered I had an excess of candida yeast and that it, candida lives on sugar. And so nearly all of the symptoms that I had that were bad health disappeared when I quit eating sugar. I had 30 days. It was just like the most horrific time that I went through on the changing my lifestyle and my weight and everything else. Uh, for 30 days, it was really hard. I was sick every day for 30 days and it was really, really difficult. But that was the candida dying off and putting poison in my life. But what has kept the weight off is the fact that what I chose was to have health in my life. I don't need to be skinny. I'm, I'm happy being fat. I'm happy being skinny. I'm happy being in the middle. I'm actually really very happy. This is just the car my soul rides around in to have the human experience. It is nothing more than that. So when I create an identity with my body, I'm doing myself a disservice because the I am is the soul that lives in this body. And that is the thing that is the same between you and I, between someone who is black, between any of us, what makes us all the same is the soul. Now, what car we choose to ride around to have the human experience, that's the things that are different. You have a sleek sports style model that was made in Korea. I'm now running around in a, a nice sedan that was made in Korea. I have a friend that she is uh, a sleek sports car that was made in Africa. That's all our bodies are. It's a container for our soul. One of the saddest things I see happening in the Asian community in general, and that is it's the same thing that I watched happen with all the other races when they started feeling the target on them. And that is all of a sudden now we want to start creating labels and saying, this is who I am. But see, 
my racial ethnicity is Korean and something else. And I'm not really sure what the something else is. I, for a long time, didn't want to be Asian. I was adopted by a German-American family. There were no other people in my life for a long, long time except Caucasian people. So my entire identity was to be white because for me, I saw that as being the only way in which I was going to survive the world. When I was eight, I had come up with this amazing plan. I was really sure if you didn't see my profile, you wouldn't know I was Asian. Now, remember, I'm eight. But so at eight years old, if you had met me then, you would have thought, oh, my gosh, this is this is really a hyper child. Because wherever you were, I was trying to make sure I was space forward so you would never see my profile was really difficult in a room full of people. I would find a corner and I would move constantly so that no one would ever see my profile because I was so sure that my Asian profile, they would only, you only knew that in profile. I, for a very long time, I remember there was another girl who was adopted in my family from Korea as well. And one time she really angrily said to me, she goes, one day you're going to wake up and you're going to discover you're not white. And no matter how much you try to be, no matter how much you try and sound like, no matter what you do, you're not white. And the day that you wake up, I hope you're not all alone and you don't have anybody that wants to hang with you because you're not white. So when I kind of started moving into the Korean community, I found I wasn't Asian enough. So I wasn't white enough here. I wasn't Asian enough here. But the really beautiful thing that I have discovered, and that is all of those things, they're labels. My racial ethnicity is Korean and something else. I was in a gas station and somebody who was Japanese asked me my race when I was in my 20s. And I told them that I was found in Seoul, Korea. And they said, oh, you look like you could be Japanese. Never tell anybody that you're Korean. They're like the, the scum of the Asian world. Just never, ever tell anybody. Tell everybody you're Japanese. So for a long time, I told people I was Japanese. But see, all of those, they're just labels. They're not an identity. That's not who I am. I am the soul, the connection to God that rides in an Asian version of a car. But that is not who I am. I am not a Korean. My racial ethnicity is Korean. My social ethnicity is Caucasian because that's the world I grew up in. That's how I learned to speak. That's how I learned to act, interact socially. So for me, I have two very different ethnicities. One is the racial ethnicity, and secondarily is the social ethnicity. What I find really sad is that I'm hearing Asians all over the planet starting to talk about creating identity for them in this very same way that Blacks say, oh, Black is not the proper term for us now. African-American is not the proper term for us. Uh, Negro is not the proper term. All of these things, it's like you got to learn the new word. It was like when I was a kid and I changed my name a thousand times. If you didn't know my new name, I wouldn't talk to you. It's the very same thing that's happening. Somehow we feel that by putting a label out there that uniquely identifies us, somehow we feel that there's strength in that identity. And I say no. When I read something that says the um, all of the, the things that they say about Asians, 
for the most part, they're, you know, they're pretty positive. We're supposed to be overachievers. We're always supposed to be great at math. We're, you know, detail-oriented. We have a lot of integrity. We're extremely talented. We're very creative. Now, those are all really positive things. And the other day, I read a post that was saying, this kind of prejudice needs to end because what it's doing is putting a burden on the shoulders of children coming along who aren't good at math, who aren't good at science, who aren't good. And Siri, I, I am so very sorry. It might be that I'm just so very old, but if I'm going to have any kind of prejudice, I would prefer that it be that. Now, whether or not this creates a burden where I believe all of a sudden now it is one of the other adoptee channels the gentleman that runs that, he is a psychiatrist, and he um, asked to speak with me, and when we talked, he said, I don't know if you've noticed, but I pulled your posts, and I said, well, I did notice, and he said, I pulled your replies that you posted also, I said, well, I did notice, I just assumed that it wasn't to your liking, and I'm okay with that. He said, well, I love what you write, and he said, but what I really want you to do here, this is a place for Korean adoptees to vent and to talk about the trauma and to have a place to discuss the trauma, not the solutions. And I'm thinking, seriously, this is, and he said, so what I'd like you to do is just take your post and talk about your trauma, but don't include your solutions and, and how you got healthier. I just want to let you know, we're very, very interested in your solutions, actually. <laughs> well, I'm glad because you know what? Life is about the thing that I discovered because I did tons, tons of therapy, every kind of therapy you could name. And one day I was sitting in an office and there was a lady there and she and I started talking and I would have sworn to you that this woman had been probably just started therapy the day before. And then I found out she'd been doing this for 10 years. And I was, I'm thinking, I don't want to be like this 10 years from now. I, it's the reason why I'm going through and spending all this money. I don't want to be miserable anymore. I don't want to be sad. I don't want to be shamed. I don't want to have depression. I don't want to, I, I just, I don't want any of this anymore. And what I saw in the traditional methods is they were like temporary fixes. And if you did psychiatry, it was going to be a lifelong relationship with you and your psychiatrist. And then somebody introduced me to Eckhart Tolle. To his book, The Power of Now. Yep, I have that book. Yep. And what I got in an instant, and the first time I ever read it, I thought it was a lot of hooey, and I thought, oh my gosh, this is kind of one of the most ridiculous things I've ever read. And then something, something got my attention. And that something was none of what you feel is real in this present moment. And I'm thinking, well, if it's not real, why does it run my life? And so I got back into that book and I read it. And the thing that leaped out at me was an understanding that if I could somehow learn how to become present, I did not have to live with all the emotional trauma that was part of my history. And so that's what I pursued then. I said, okay, now I have all the knowledge that was given to me by tremendous people that did an amazing amount of good. There was inner child work. Today, the work that I do, I'm an empowerment relationship coach. And mostly when I explain to people where we begin, that relationship with ourself, that is the one of where we all have to begin. When we have a relationship that's not working elsewhere, 
it's always because there is something that's standing in the way with us. And so when we've got a blockage and all of a sudden we're not getting that promotion, the relationships that we have with the loved in our lives, they're just repetitious um, abuse over and over the relationships that we have with friends or people that that there's no integrity there's no longevity there's no loyalty and you found yourself in the cycle of that kind of abuse too i'm just curious oh over and over and over over and over and over my last name is a sicilian italian name the abuse that was in that marriage it's going to be the only experience of domestic violence I have in my life, I'm very happy to say, but serious abuse, physical abuse, and mental and emotional abuse. And that was the guy that uh, recently passed away, you're saying? No, no, that uh, that was the husband before. Okay. The husband that just that passed away uh, six years ago. The one that passed away like six years ago, it sounded like you had a pretty good relationship with him. And... Well, I did, but... He was my best friend, and I was like a mom to him. He had been a 20-year heroin addict that lived under a bridge. I met him because I have been fascinated by anyone who has a life very different than the one I've experienced. I really want to know about anybody that has gone out in the world and lives life from a different place than I did. Because for me, I, I really felt that if I talked to enough people, I would one day be able to find a secret to be okay to be whole. And so kind of one of the things, but and this is just something that's left over from those days, but I, I interview everybody. I want to know about them. When I found out that he was homeless and lived under a bridge and had just recently moved into his truck, I wanted to know why. I wanted to know because he was a very presentable man, a very talented man from what I heard from the other people that were in the bar. And I really wanted to try and understand how do you choose to live under a bridge and be a heroin addict for 20 years of your life? So we just started with these really in-depth, very intellectual conversations. And at the end of one of those conversations, he said, I have nothing to offer you, and there's no reason why you'll ever say yes to this. And he said, but I just somehow feel that if you would care enough to help me get my life back on track, I just, I feel like God sent you, and, and I feel I could do it. And I had not yet really healed from the sexual trauma that plagued me most of my life. And so what he was offering me was a relationship that wasn't going to be the complex relationship of a man and a woman like husband and wife, but that we were going to be partners. We would be best friends. Um, I was his mentor. I was like a mom to him. He was just somebody who I know. He adored me and he was there for me no matter what. But we did not have a male-female relationship. So again the trauma for my life still had the effect even in my last marriage. Could you explain a little bit about the sexual abuse side? Cause I really do feel like it does contribute like a lot to one's mental health. Did that come from your, your adoptive family or do you mean from your relationships or could you explain a little bit about that? The sexual abuse started in my adopted family. I think that it may have happened actually happened possibly in Korea as well. 
but my adopted father began abusing me shortly after I arrived, sexually abusing me, and actually ended up selling me to two other men. Um, he sold shows. So the sexual abuse began very early. And yes, it has been an impact in my life and probably will always have, it will always have its footprint. I think it's a really complicated thing. Were you diagnosed with a, a certain label like borderline then? Or what was the diagnosis back then when you were being hospitalized? Oh my golly. I had every diagnosis you could get from anywhere. Part of that was because I realized that the psychiatrists, they were like so easy to play. I, I could run circles around them. And I, I had done so much therapy up to that point. I knew what all the symptoms for everything that anybody ever wanted to diagnose me. I knew what they were supposed to be. And so that's what I would do in therapy. I then would play in therapy and I would give them all the answers so that they would then. So I've been diagnosed at every, <laughs> at every kind of crazy that you want to uh, get diagnosed as. The reality of it was that I just suffered from trauma that I didn't know how to handle. And what I really discovered was that inner child work, present moment consciousness, and strong visualization for creation, those are the modalities that I work in. I have been working in for almost 40 years. The reason why they work, all the old traditional therapies, they kept the trauma alive because everything about the old traditional therapies was to constantly talk about the trauma, to explain when it happened, to talk about how it impacted you then, to talk about how it feels now, to talk about how it has impacted past relationships, to talk about how it, it, you see it impacting your future. All of that literally keeps trauma alive. When I engage with a new client, I know the very first session, they just need to be heard, and I get that. But when we start moving forward, we will not often actually revisit the trauma unless they, they have some specific need. There are some times where there are some times where children who have come from a family of neglect, they just need to be heard. They because they were the child that was neglected that wasn't heard. They cried and no one came to comfort them. And so I get that there are just moments where they just need to be heard. But when we spend all of our energy regurgitating every bad thing that's ever happened to us, we feed it and we give it life and we give it power. Because whatever has our focus, that's what we create in life. So children for individuals and adults who are still who are still extremely stigmatized by the traumas that have happened in their life. When I make this statement, they're highly offended. But the reality in sexual abuse is parts touched hearts. Now that's the real, that's the physical reality of what happened in that circumstance. All of the mental trauma that is given to us by the culture we live in, by the world at large, because I actually ended up working, um, and I still do, working with pedophiles. And one of the groups that I was working with, one of the men asked me, do you really believe that if you lived in a society where people did not think it was wrong for adults and children to have sex, but thought that it was a really healthy 
and natural way of being, do you think children would all be horribly traumatized by the act the way they are here in the United States? And I've got to tell you, I don't think so. I really think an awful lot of the trauma is introduced by social stigma. I remember when I first started talking about the sexual abuse, the thing that really shut me down was the amount of shame that came from everybody that there must be something wrong with me to even mention something like this and to to, to possibly say that this, this was ever real, that it ever happened. There has to be something really wrong with me. So a child takes this cue and says, oh, sexual abuse, that's shameful. That's horrible. That's that that's that's something I can I, I can never bring out in the light. And because of way sexual abuse happens in in the states, it's got to be you have to lie about what's going on. You have to lie about everything that you're doing with this person. All of that teaches the child that there's going to be a huge stigma. There's going to be shame. There's going to be there's going to be bad feelings. There's going to be pain. And when we teach ourselves that this is the expected response, that's the one we start living into when we associate the label of a trauma as part of our life experiences. I do have a question. Yes. Speaking of trauma, I've had my, my go on with dialectical behavioral therapy, and a lot of it's about radical acceptance and being in the present moment, how important is those two philosophies to you when it comes to trauma? Is it that important or is there some other analogy or philosophy that you feel is more healthy and healing when it comes to emotional trauma or physical abuse? I think all of that paired together, but the problem with the traditional therapies, they did not include presence. They didn't include mindfulness. And that's the one key that I think they were absolutely missing. I think all of them put together. When I talk about the damaged inner child, it's the same thing that Eckhart Tolle talks about when he speaks of the pain body, when he talks of the ego. The reason why I stay with inner child is because people relate to children and they, they have the capacity to have greater compassion when you're talking about a child and when they can identify with a part of them that's damaged as being a child, there's an easier way to relate with greater compassion. But it's the ego, it's the pain body, they're all the very same thing. What I discovered with Eckhart Tolle was the very first moment I was ever able to step into presence, full presence, in present, in the moment. I had a few seconds of no shame no pain. I had never known what that felt like. I had never experienced that in my life. And that's what I said, okay, I will chase this forever and a day. I will chase it till I understand it, till I learn it, until I know it. And so for me, what I think is the magic combination is inner child work coupled with present moment consciousness, understanding what that whole process is all about. And the visualization for creation and what that really is about we create whatever we see here we think that it's out of our hands that all of these things just happen to us one of the very sad statistics a child who's been sexually abused or even physically abused prior to the age of six on average will have three more abuses happen in their adulthood now I will tell you that my belief 
of why that is so is because that child takes the victim label and puts it on their forehead, and that's how they see themselves. They see themselves now as the victim. And predators, what they are looking for, they're looking for the victim because that's for them. That's their magic formula. Find the victim that's going to allow me to continue to terrorize them, to continue to abuse them. And because we carry that label until we find healing, until we find freedom from the labels that have been attached to us, that's what is all around us. So that's why there'll be predators. There'll be at least three more of them in the future that will show up for the child that is not yet healthy. We create the images that we see in our mind. Did that answer your question? Yes. And I, I guess I want to just relay this information is that when I was in DBT, they discuss about mindfulness. And my idea behind it is the fact that you focus on the present moment. Would you agree with that? Uh, well, DBT, and yes, and I'm, I'm well familiar with it. It's not about focus. It's literally about stepping into the present moment. Okay, I'm going to give you, this is an exercise that I give all of my clients, and it just works. When you have a moment where stress shows up for you, or when anything shows up for you that is not a welcome experience emotionally, that it's just not, you just don't want it in this particular moment. All you have to do is ground. And what I've got is a grounding exercise to bring you fully present in the moment. And it just works. It's really, really simple. The processes I go through, they're very simple. They're not the complicated things that everybody supports that has been. And so the grounding tool that I give my clients, you check your gut. When your gut is not peaceful, you are not grounded and you are not present. So all this is about is so that you can become present and you do it in this order because it has to do with the way in which the brain starts recreating imagery. And it also has to do the breathing. You're going to breathe in through your nose and out through your mouth because there's a vassal nerve that's at the back of your, your nostrils. And when you breathe in through your nose and out through your mouth, it's a calming effect on the body. If you reverse that, you breathe in through your mouth and out through your nose, it actually excites the body. So the process is to look to your left and say, to my left, I see a picture. In front of me, I see two very handsome young men. To my right, I see a sofa. Close my eyes, breathe deeply in from my toes, bring it all the way up through my being, hold it for a count of three through my nose, release it through my mouth. Check my gut. It's kind of like meditation, correct? It is. It's a grounding. It's the combination of actually bringing yourself physically into the presence of what's material around you, and then also having the breathing to help your body start producing different chemicals so that in the present moment, you can let go of that baggage that you're clinging onto from the past. And you do these in sets of three, and you just continue to do that until your gut is peaceful. And it will bring you present every time. Now, it may only be for a very few seconds, but everyone experiences presence doing this for a short amount of time. And if you just keep doing it, every time anxiety shows up, uh, you're getting ready to go for a job interview and you're just nervous and you're scared, do this exercise. The fear disappears. You know, there was this technique that was called observe and describe, which is literally just being aware of your senses and then, you know, just being 
mindful about the things around you at this current situation. Do you believe that's just pretty much the same thing? It is the very same thing. It's just a lot more complicated. This is just literally a, an exercise that is nothing more than looking to your left, finding something in your environment that you physically focus on, saying it out loud because there's a process that goes with the mental imagery of also creating the auditory sound that you hear, changing your perspective of your vision, changing it directly and part It just brings your focus. Everything is about being present in your environment and creating artificial observation. And so, yes, later on, what we will then go through with the process I'll start taking my clients to later on is going to be a more complex observation of when the emotions show up, of, of just being a strong observer, of seeing anger and being able to allow it to just be there because there's nothing about control. There's nothing about getting rid of. It's about understanding that there's a separation. There's not an identity. There's a separation between the experience of what you feel and who you are in the present moment. And it's to be able to have that separation that will give you the power of choice. What do you want to say? So I, I've also learned this technique with like urge surfing, which is literally just sitting with your feelings. And I also learned distraction with activities. Do you think that's important when it comes to your daily life? If you want to uh, just be in the present moment, or do you find any of that not helpful or because maybe there's people that might still has that urge of thinking back and is there other means to the end that you feel that would be helpful when it comes to dealing with trauma? I think they're all helpful because as long as you are seeking a solution, I tell everyone, try everything on, try it all on. You're going to find different things work differently for different people. For me, I just want a really quick way to move forward. And this is what offered me. But this also took in all that I had learned and all the different therapies and, and, and all, the, all, the, all the healing that I sought through all the different mediums that I had sought before I gained the mindfulness, which I believe is the most powerful. For me, that is absolutely the most powerful element in being able to be free of the trauma. Because... The moment I was able to experience the separation from the feeling of the trauma, that was when I knew that I could do this. And that's when I knew I could be free. And so that was what I then just really started understanding. And now when I did the observation, I got it. I'm seeing my anger. And yes, it is over here to my left. There is my anger. My anger, as I encourage you, make all of those emotions, make them your friends. What happens Physically, what happens in the process, something happens for a child. And trauma is nothing more than something that a child does not yet have enough life experiences to rationalize. That's all trauma really is. Now, some trauma is because of really severe things like sexual abuse. Other trauma is just humiliation and mortification and, and, and suddenly not fitting in and not belonging and having some kind of an experience or um, as it was with one of my clients that she had severe abandonment issues. And it wasn't that there was this horrible trauma that happened to her life. She had great parents, but her mother got really sick when she was really young. And so she had to go stay with a not so nice grandmother and for her her mother had abandoned her because she was so very young and she didn't really even get that this was her association was that she didn't understand that her mother had been sick 
and that she couldn't take care of her. her mother had a long hospital stay. So she didn't have tremendous trauma, but yet her abandonment issues were exactly the same as my abandonment issues from being found in a trash can and given out by biological parents. They were exactly the same. So when I was able to have the separation when I got that over here, when the abandonment issue, when that showed up, all that's happening is it's triggering a memory that when I was a child, when I was abandoned, when I was put in that trash can and I started crying, something happened for me that said, oh my God, I can't trust the world. No one's ever going to be there for me. And then I just waited for everyone to abandon me because I already had the prediction that that's the way it was going to happen. I arrive at the States, abandonment happens in the abuse and the adoption. I then start recreating all kinds of relationships that end in abandonment because that's what I believe is going to be happening. And so that's what I created. So she did the exact same thing. And the reason why I'm saying this is because not all trauma is because of something that is horrific, the way that we look at the world as being horrific. It is nothing more than a child becomes extremely overwhelmed by something that they cannot explain because they don't have life experiences yet that say, I can understand this. I can make sense of this. My adopted mother hates me because she has had some extremely horrible experiences in her lifetime, and I'm something she cannot understand or rationalize. As an infant, I don't have the ability to understand that. My adopted father is extremely damaged from all the abuse that was in his life. As an infant, I don't have the ability to rationalize that. So the stories that I create about all of those events are the stories that I then take into my adulthood and then start recreating for myself. Yes. It kind of reminds me of there's a story that I heard about feeding two type of wolves, feeding like the dark wolf and the one that's kind of more light. You got to be really careful saying it kind of represents with society going now and all the anger, like with the, the Black Lives Matter, the cops brutality. What's your opinion on everything going on right now and with politics and right and left and all that? And do you find yourself kind of sucked in that energy? No, I am not. Our society in the United States has become money oriented. There is nothing wrong with money. It is our relationship with money that gets in the way. Money is a wonderful thing to happen. And to become a multi-billionaire will be fine for me. Because becoming the billionaire will never be the focus of my raison d'etre. It's not going to be my reason for being. It's never going to be about the money. But that's what happens for our world is we lose sight of what we're wanting to step into. The I am, the person that we are supposed to be, that is lost because now our identity starts becoming all of these labels. I am Asian. I am wealthy. I am good at this. I am not good at this. I am black. I am able to do this. I am Mexican. I am all of these labels. It's the reason why I really want to stay away from labels because the moment we see there's not a good or a bad there's just what is so the moment we attach a label of bad to something there now is a whole expectation of what that is supposed to be because we've attached the label of bad to it are you familiar with the lady called marcia linehan or no i'm just curious i don't think so oh because she's the one that 
actually was the one that made DBT. She had borderline disorder. I learned her about her when I was in the group home for 90 days. And she pretty much describes what you just described, which is mindfulness. So I feel that it's very relative because I don't know what she had, but she was considered borderline and she had trauma. <laughs> but the way you describe it, it seems like what helped her with mindfulness has also helped you in the people that you're trying to help treat or help coach. Absolutely. And yes, and I, I want to be very clear. I have zero degrees. I am not a therapist. I am not a psychiatrist. I am not a social worker. I am an empowerment relationship coach. And there's a very, very big difference. I would never step into the arena of, of treating a mental illness. That is not where I'm called to be. I don't have the expertise for it and I would not touch it. So I'm not treating anyone. I'm literally, I, I coach. The really big difference, and now I know the lady that you're talking about, the moment we attach a label to something and we give it a definition, we now create an expectation of how things are supposed to be. And so what I really see, and especially here in the United States, when money becomes the reason why, when money becomes the purpose, you will never have fulfillment. Money is the same thing as dirt. If our society said owning dirt, mountains, owning mountains was what it was really all about, we would all be out there doing everything we could to own a mountain. If you're starving and someone says, here is a lot of money, eat it, you'll eat it, but you're not going to be filled. You're not going to be satisfied. And that's what we're seeking in the solutions of money, fame, success, of all the things that we define as the labels of where we have to be. That has nothing to do with who we are. The soul that lives within this car body is identical. We are all part of one. We are the exact same. And what I know that in death, that is going to be the coming back to where we came from. This human experience is for nothing more than to understand the finite, that which does not survive forever. I was kind of curious, what's your viewpoint of psychiatry? I'm pretty sure since you've been through the whole therapeutic process, did they try to treat you with meds and did they actually help you? And do you still take them now or are you at a point where you, your mind is so healthy that you don't need it anymore? I walked away from the meds when I walked away from the mental hospital. They um, treated me with every, because medication was just becoming popular at the time when I went into the mental hospital. And I literally got thrown out of the mental hospital. The doctor who ran the mental hospital that I was admitted to believed that you first break and then remake the individual into a worthy functioning person in society. And the biggest problem he had with me is he couldn't break me. And they tried a variety of different things. And, and I, I, I really do get that from their perspective, they, they saw that as being, as being the right way to go. My view of psychiatry, I think it has its place. I think that it can provide a lot of good. I'm not in agreement with a lot of the different methods. I do not believe that things, unless you have a chemical imbalance, and there are so many of us that, yes, we do. We have chemical imbalances. 
that those chemicals that's just doing drugs that's like saying okay well i got a problem i get up and i do cocaine every day and i have got anger issues and 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 i have no patience well as long as you're going to be doing cocaine every day that's going to be a reality and there are many of us out here that we have those imbalances our body is not producing the right mix of chemistry and for those individuals they very much need to do the medications that can balance that chemistry inside but my belief is that is an instant go-to and that's that's what's not okay. I think there's so many children that are misdiagnosed. There are so many kids that, uh, that the, the moment the, the child fidgets in class and doesn't pay attention and doesn't sit up, he's labeled immediately. ADHD. Yeah, immediately. And when you do that to a young child and you give them that label, this is what I'm talking about in labels. Now the expectation from the family, from his community, from his educational sources, their expectation of who he's supposed to be shapes who he becomes. I do not believe that even half of the children that have been diagnosed with that disorder, I don't believe they have it. I believe there was just somebody that saw some symptoms and said, you know what, this is the easy way. Um, Okay, I I don't even want to say the negatives about people. I think that everybody does the best that they can do, even those that are trying to rip people off. They're doing the best that they can do in, in in that particular moment. But I don't have anything against psychiatry. Yes, sir. Yeah, so there's a concept when it comes to mental health that you're not your mental illness. So I think that really ties in with what you're trying to say is that we're not our labeled mental health. You know, I, I've had bipolar for 13 years. I had my ringer with a whole bunch of hospitalizations and thankfully I'm doing much better now, but clearly I also understand that I'm not my mental health disorder or, or like that. And I think that itself brings empowerment because yes, to clarify yourself, you're not your trauma or your mental illness that yes, it brings you to the present in a sense. Yes, it does. Absolutely. The disability can exist there, but that's not who you are. That's not your identity. It's no different than the damaged inner child that, that says, warning, warning, danger, danger, that you're, you're, you're never going to be accepted. Don't try. Don't speak up. You don't belong. The mental illness is no different than that. It's just another damaged inner child. It's part It's part of the makeup of the car body that you ride around in, that your soul rides around in. But it's not your identity. It's not the I am. It's a condition that your body goes through. A car that needs to have its oil changed is not a bad car because it needs an oil change and it makes a clunky noise. It simply needs an oil change. A car that must run on high octane fuel is not a superior car because it must have high octane fuel. It's simply what that car needs. The drugs that we do that if if, if bipolar is, is a diagnosis, it's just that. It's just a condition of the body, the car body we ride around in. It is nothing more than that. It means our brain dumps the wrong mix of chemicals into our body. That's that's all it is. And so we have experiences that are not the same as someone else. But if you've ever seen somebody on LSD or you've ever seen somebody on, on, on meth or you've ever seen anybody doing drugs, 
that that everybody is recognized, everybody recognizes, they do not act the way everybody else does. It's drugs. Every emotion we have is because the, the brain says, okay, this reminds me of something, and so let me dump these chemicals into your body because you're supposed to be afraid right now. This circumstance is such, right now you're supposed to feel intense fear because you don't belong here. You're not white. This isn't where you're supposed to be. So when I walk into a room when I was a child and all of a sudden I realized I, I, I can't walk into this room. I don't belong here. All happened was my brain had a memory and then it dumped chemicals into my body so that I felt this intense fear. That's what makes it real. And that's what in the present moment, that intense fear still exists. But I am able through visualization, I step out of that fear and I step into the middle and to my right is my emotionally unencumbered self. And then I get to choose which one I step into. I can stay in the damaged child. Go ahead. Yeah. Do you feel like we mentioned mental health, but do you feel that there's still a social stigma when it comes to mental health and might be the reason why people are, are ashamed or because trauma has a tendency to come aligned with dealing with mental health issues. So my question to you is, do you feel versus physical health, do you still feel mental health is still somewhat challenging because people don't quite accept it as something that's common? I think it still has some stigmatization, but not to where people do not want to get it. I think that what happens for most people, people don't tell other people that I'm their coach unless they've got trauma with other people they will then tell them you should call her and talk to her but no one owns up to the fact that they're talking to me about the situations that are happening in their life so yes there is some type of stigmatization there that goes that says you're being stigmatized by saying that you have to consult a coach but on the overall i think what it is more than anything else is i don't think people really want to have to acknowledge that they need other people i really feel that that's what it is more than anything else because people think that there'll be judgmental people out there and that they'll they'll view them in a negative light so i think maybe that's part of the reason why it has to probably do with shame actually it does it does because it's like what you're not healthy enough to be able to figure this out on your own uh, you're so damaged that you've got to have somebody come along and you know and just read back to you what it is that you're saying that does exist but i think more than anything else is people are really afraid to need other people and at this emotional level that's the most vulnerable place i mean we can need a lawyer but people don't go to a lawyer until it's like crisis moment is showing up right here right now people won't go to an estate planner until all of a sudden they realize they're looking at old age People don't want to call a plumber until you know the, the thing blows up. I really believe most of it really comes about because people are afraid to be vulnerable. And in order for us to become real, we have to become comfortable with being vulnerable because that's where real lives. The day that we can understand that being vulnerable doesn't mean that what I'm doing is ripping open my chest and handing you a knife and saying, stab me. What it means is that I get to walk out in the world with or without makeup. It means I get to walk out in the world with or without being dressed up. I get to walk out in the world with or without money. Vulnerable simply means 
that we can be real. And our entire society is so based on everything being phony. My opinion, that's what's standing in the way of everybody getting the help that they need to get because they're afraid to be vulnerable and they absolutely don't know how to be real. I feel like the way to deal with vulnerability is acceptance of this. I can't remember the full quote when it comes to the 12 steps in Alcohol Anonymous, but something about acceptance and the wisdom and no difference. So I feel like personally that acceptance can really be helpful when it comes to dealing with the vulnerability. Wasn't that called radical acceptance? Yeah. Well, and yeah, radical acceptance. The thing is, people see acceptance and forgiveness. They see them as these powerless things where all of a sudden what you're doing is saying, okay, well, I accept that you're abusing me and that's okay. That is not what acceptance or forgiveness or surrender, that is not what it is about at all. Acceptance, surrender, and forgiveness, all that is about is giving up the need for retribution. I guess that kind of reminds me of the article that you wrote where you wrote, forgiveness is not acceptance or endorsement of what was. Forgiveness is a release of resentment, the need for vengeance, and victim identity. That's it. It kind of reminds me because there, there's this group, uh, I, I won't name the actual group, but they're pretty negative against uh, abusive uh, uh, parents. And in their mind, they're saying that forgiveness was seen as a negative thing, saying that, why should I have to forgive uh, my abuser and they took it in a negative light but in the end uh, I really do think forgiveness does release some of that the trauma I, I guess in in my opinion not really seen as the negative label as this person saw it no see forgiveness is what we give ourselves it has nothing to do to the person who's being forgiven it literally has nothing to do with them it simply means that I no longer need anything from my abuser. I don't need anything from them anymore. I was raped and I've been raped three times as an adult. Now I can still live in that rape or I can say I accept that this was something that happened. It's simply what is so. It is not good. It is not bad. It was simply what is so. It's part of my life's education. And that is what's real. See, if we truly have an identity with beauty and say it must look like this, we can never allow ourselves to be beautiful. That's why I say that labels, they're all about making us small. They don't define us. They don't, they don't create anything. They make us small. And so, again, that's what the forgiveness and acceptance label. That's why that doesn't work is because it's like supposedly you're giving up something to your abuser it is just the reverse you're saying i no longer i no longer need anything from you i don't need an apology from you i don't need you to change i need nothing from you that is all forgiveness acceptance that's surrender that's all it's about how old were you when you actually kind of were able to let go of all the things that you actually been through what what age were you probably about that time where you find peace with yourself when i first was able to let go of the baggage and just know that what happens i let go of the baggage at some point in time i'll pick it back up i let go of the baggage i'll go pick it back up again it shows up in your life whenever stressors show up but it was in my 30s 
that's actually really, really young, actually, from all that you've been through. <laughs> it is. It is. I went on a 10-year journey in my 20s. I just, I had to find some peace because I literally, I couldn't walk in a room and hold your eyes. I couldn't look anyone in the eyes. The shame that I carried was so intense and so great. One of my best stories for acceptance, and I cannot tell you if this is a true story or not. It was one that was given to me. There was a man that was extremely just loved. Nelson Mandela, that's the name I'm trying to think of. But when he was in prison, he had a great following, and he was a writer, and he wrote to them nearly every day. And this man was so enamored with him that he left, and he actually went to Africa so that he could follow up close. And one of the things that he had shown me later on was a letter that Nelson Mandela had written to his following, and it said, I am free. I am free. No one can ever imprison me again. And his following assumed that that letter was written because he was going to be released from prison. But the day he wrote that letter was the day that the leader of the country had gone to visit him and told him, you are never going to leave this prison. I will not kill you because it will turn you into a martyr. But the rest of your life will be spent inside of these four walls. And so the day that he was told that he would be imprisoned forever in this cell was the day that he wrote that message. What had happened for him up until that point, he had been an angry man that fought against everything, was fought against the guards, was going to break out of the prison, was going to make freedom happen. And the day that this happened, that this man stepped and said, you will never be released. You are going to die inside of these four walls. A bird that was significant to him as a child flew on the windowsill, and he heard his voice come out of the bird's mouth, and it said, one day, I hope to have enough time to be able to write every day. One day, I hope to have enough time to be able to meditate as often as I would like. One day, I hope to have enough time available to me to pursue the understanding of spirituality to the depth that I would like to have. And he suddenly realized one day had arrived. And that second he got, he was only a prisoner if he was a prisoner in his mind. And that's when he arrived at the acceptance that he would die in this cell. And he accepted that this was going to be so. And he stepped out of the fight against leaving those four walls. And that's when the powerful work that he did and the powerful writing flowed out of him. My question to you is pretty deep. I'm just curious. Do you feel forgiveness is a process or is it like instant gratification once you figure it out? For me, it's an instant because I do. I understand the process of forgiveness. Until I had that understanding, it was a long, difficult process. I was with everybody else. I was like, I, you guys are nuts. I'm going to forgive somebody that's done all this damage to me. You're, you're crazy. How do you tell this to people that have such deep trauma that they don't want to get over it? Like, are they help? Are they and, and, and at they, all? Are they at all being helped? And they continue or? in that cycle of self destruction. I, I guess the reason why I started these interviews because I dated a Korean adoptee woman. Her situation was kind of similar. So, with that, I that serves as an example. And what advice do you actually have based off your life? And what kind of process or thinking process should they do? And what steps should should they should they listen and say, I'm just going to go to a treatment center then 
or I should say, screw it. It's my way or the highway. Uh, and, and the reason why her trauma that I associate with is because pretty much when at a, as a young girl, she went back to Korea, found her parents, but they pretty much shoved the door in her face. And because of that, she never was the same ever since. And I guess maybe now it makes me think about how we narrate the story about uh, about applying the negative meaning to it. I was kind of curious. I know there's similar adoptees and maybe people in general that just are just stuck in that hole. And I'm, I'm sure you're stuck in that hole. Like, uh, could you kind of they... give like the step-by-step process of what you think they should do and uh, anything like that based on, on your life? Do you feel there's people out there that are pretty much hopeless or do you feel that there is some light of hope in anyone that you can come across? I say there's hope for everyone. But see, everyone has to find, and of course in AA they call it their bottom. I got help because I got tired of being miserable. Was it your choice or, or did people force you? I'm guessing you, you finally chose to get better. I- oh no, I chose it. After I got out of the mental hospital, that was my beginning to understand that there were some solutions somewhere. Now no, when I tell you I don't have the degrees, I also the highest grade of education that I ever achieved was eighth grade. I got a GED and I've done a whole lot of college courses thereafter. So my life really was impacted by all the stuff that was there. But the place that you have to get to is you got to be tired of being miserable. I mean, that's literally all it takes. If you finally get to the place where it's like, I am just sorry, I'm tired. I don't want life to be this way anymore. Yes. And what do you say? Was it just a quick of a snap of a thought saying, screw this, I'm not going to give control of my abusers and everything that bad that happened to me? Did that just like click in your in your brain or? No, no, there wasn't just like a click. It was it, it was the initial work was a 10 year process. So it does take time. Yeah, it does take time. It takes time to practice it. I got instantaneous results. I mean, the thing that I can tell you, the moment that mindfulness, the moment that presence became part of my life and my understanding, I got instantaneous results. The The only difficulty was that I had to practice it so that it was where I lived instead of where I chose to visit. That was the only thing that stood in the way of me being able to have to be where I'm at today, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. That's the only thing that stood in the way. It's just a practice of it. It's a muscle. Yes. Don't you believe it's kind of like developing a skill? If you want to become good at something, you got to have that habit of being able to do it again and again. Do you feel it's something that you learn and you can pretty much achieve? Absolutely. Absolutely. I so see the evidence of that in you, Travis, because you do. You, you, you get that bipolar is part of, it's part of your existence, but it's not your identity. And I know that how you got there was a lot of practice in defining an identity. And I see an identity very different for you. Am I correct? The thing that I know, and that is when presence becomes part of your existence, presence does not change your circumstance. It does not change anything about it. Nelson Mandela did not leave prison. He wasn't released. But everything changed for him. And that was because his perspective and his identity. That's what changed. That's our empowerment. Presence is not going to make COVID not exist. That's not going to happen. Presence doesn't make war 
suddenly disappear unless all people start to step into presence. My presence simply allows me to stand into a place of strength while observing everything that's going around me. And when I stand in this place of strength instead of a place of fear, possibilities show up for me. Things that I cannot see. When you have a come from a fear, when you step into fear, what you see is with blinders because now all you've got is the tunnel vision of fear. Presence simply says I have no spectacles on whatsoever. I have no blinders. I'm standing in the present moment. And what do I observe? Go ahead. I feel that by focusing on your past, it keeps you enslaved to anxiety, keeps you yes. like trapped to stress, trauma, the like, maybe even contributes to like addictions to an extent. But I also feel like focusing on the future can be stressful. Oh, yes. Because you're always thinking, what if, what do I do? And by just being in the moment, as they call it, thinking of not just today, but at this very instant second or even less than a second, I feel that allows you to at least escape somewhat of the dread when it comes to the past or future. Well, see, that's presence means that I'm just fully present here in this moment. And when I'm fully present here in this moment, all the stuff from the past, it doesn't exist here. So where we all live, suffering is in the story. I wake up today and I walk in the room and my mate is on the phone and starts speaking really quiet. Now, all that's happened is I've walked into the room and my mate has started speaking really quiet on the phone. But I have all these issues from the past that say, I can't trust. And so the story shows up. All of a sudden, that little damaged inner kid shows up and starts going, oh, danger, danger, danger. He, 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 he's, he's talking to another woman. You're going to lose him. He's going to abandon you. You're not good enough. This is what always happens. Danger, danger, danger. And if I stay in that past commentary, then all that's going to happen is I now will drag all that stuff from the past. I'll feel all of those emotions of when betrayal did happen to me. I'll feel it all as if it's real right now. And then I'll make all kinds of promises for things being better in the future. And that's why I never experienced the peace of the present moment. Only in the present moment are we free from the experiences of the past. Only in the present moment are we free from making all promises of whatever we wish to be in the future. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think it makes a lot of sense because I feel also when it comes to being present, you're being more mindful. And when you're mindful, you don't think about the past or future. You just think about what's happening at this given moment in time. So I also feel that allows you to kind of just forgive yourself because you're not thinking about past debt, regret, and you're not thinking about how to do that in the future. You're just trying to focus on at the moment. Precisely that. You're spot on. 